parfait. Stuttgart it ended England nil Republic of Ireland won we'll do them for you today Mick Byrne shouted at the crowd before the historic victory well according to Kevin Moran's diary in the Independent this morning that is of uh, 1990 it's a case of forgetting about Stuttgart this is a fresh start and a fresh adventure so we're about to jump in to Scotland Costa Rica first of all which is the, the early game but let's check in quickly with the Irish camp pre-match how are we looking how are the jitters looking Turlock? The jitters are fairly well advanced. Um, it, it really is, it's hard to overestimate how this being the first World Cup game really factored into the atmosphere around it. I mean, it was, I guess, similar to England in 88. The fact that it was England was obviously special, but um, there was a real kind of, my, mem- my memory of it is that there was a real kind of appreciation of the of the historic significance of this and probably more people than you realized kind of felt that weight of you know 1965 which would have been living memory or you know any of the the near misses since so like the fact that the country was embarking on this adventure um was very prevalent and, and very vivid and and yeah it was it was everything you've heard basically it effectively shut the country down for the duration of the game was was not in any way exaggerated. In terms of the, the team itself, there was only really one item of concern, I suppose, um, depending on your perspective, which was the left-back slot. Steve Staunton had come into the side um, very impressively in the qualifying campaign, but it was being reported on the day of the game that he was going to miss out and that Jack Charlton was going to pick Chris Hutton. Well, um, the other <laughs> after Chris's after Chris's outburst in the papers, you know, I'm sure he's in a bit of trouble there, praising Andy Townsend like he was, you know. Exactly. Yeah, uh, Chris Hutton yesterday said he felt Andy Townsend was as good as Liam Brady. Um, Andy Townsend will get a chance to prove that Chris Hutton won't. Um, but yeah, it it was also there was a, a little bit of I suppose political sensitivity about around the name that would be used for Ireland by the Italian hosts. Initially, I think the Irish party kind of freaked out when they saw that the team was going to be referred to on the scoreboard as ERA. And Dr. Tony O'Neill threw a bit of a wobbler, possibly a justified one, and got the Italian hosts to, uh, to change it to, to Republic of Ireland. Some of the politics around Irish and British football seeping into it slightly. But yeah, that was my, my memory of, of the, of the the day of the game was that literally no one was talking about anything else and in a kind of totalizing way that's difficult to imagine now when we live in such a, a fragmented and atomized world but um yeah it was even though we were in the midst of a very turbulent time in world history and indeed in Irish history it was really the only literally the only game in town well wasn't the only game that day and, and the people who wouldn't have been too concerned about that game are maybe the, the Scots who, again, would have probably travelled en masse by the looks of the stadium for their uh, opener with Costa Rica. And I think you're going to take us through this one as well, Sherlock. Yeah, huge Scottish presence uh, at this one in Genoa. Scotland had come out of really difficult group with Yugoslavia and France. They'd beaten, they'd beaten France to the second spot. Costa Rica 
managed by Bora Militinovic, who, whose brother actually scored a hat-trick against Ireland in that notorious Ireland-Yugoslavia game in the 1950s that the church attempted to ban. Yugoslavia won 4-1, Bora's brother was a hat-trick scorer that day. We've covered a little bit CONCACAF qualifiers, so I won't, go, I won't go into it in too much detail, but Costa Rica had been very impressive in, in qualifying, but they did get a walkover against Mexico due to Mexico being kicked out of the World Cup for fielding overage players at a youth tournament. So, it's fair to say, Scotland's, as was the fashion at the time, um, weren't, wouldn't have been as thorough necessarily in their, their preparation, although Andy Roxburgh, their manager, was always was always uh, reasonably meticulous, but they wouldn't have known a huge amount about Costa Rica. And it didn't look like they were going to need to know a huge amount about Costa Rica because they really dominated this game from start to finish. Um, um, Mo Johnson was Scotland's front man at the time. Um, Ali McCoist said somewhat ambitiously that he felt Mo Johnson was one of the top three strikers in the world at this stage. <laughs> We're getting some fairly, uh, some fairly tall claims as, as we go through the, the world of 1990. Um, that one might be one of the more outrageous ones, but he was in good form. This was just before he would make a controversial move um, later that summer. Uh, but yeah, Mo Johnson missed a ton of chances in the first half. Roy Aitken had a, had a good chance or a good effort from long range. Richard Goff, who not really thought of as a goal scorer, but got really, two really important goals in qualifying missed a really good chance. He then set up Johnson for another excellent chance just not too long before halftime, which Conejo, the Costa Rican goalkeeper, saved. Against all the odds and against the run of play, it was still nil-nil at halftime. Scotland, I think, kind of haunted by the ghosts of previous failures in World Cup openers, were beginning to get a little bit nervous. Um, and those nerves were clearly justified because just after halftime, Marchena picked the ball up on the right, drove in field, passed to Hara. Hara backheeled to Kayaso, and Kayaso clipped the ball over Jim Layton, although not entirely over Jim Layton, because actually clipped him on the way in. And Costa Rica were a goal up, again, entirely against the run of play. I think it was the only significant chance Costa Rica had had. Scotland's, the pattern of the game just reasserted itself after that. Um, Scotland's created plenty more chances. McNally missed a really easy header. Johnson pulled down across and about eight yards out and half volleyed it straight at the goalkeeper. Um, and then Johnson, after a flick on from McPherson, uh, turned on the ball in the six-yard box but couldn't divert it in. And, and very much against the preferences of the tens of thousands, possibly, of Scottish fans in the stadium, finished Costa Rica 1, Scotland 0. And the recriminations started almost immediately but in truth to be honest having having reviewed the highlights a few times it looks like Scotland played really well and were just desperately unlucky to lose this one. They, they really took a pounding though after it didn't they and, and even in the immediate aftermath because we mentioned the amount of Scottish fans in there I mean they're nearly they're nearly getting more jeers than Maradona was from the Italians you know it's it's crazy the the level of unhappiness and abuse they get one game in after admittedly a pretty disastrous result but it's it's definitely like it is and i don't know if it if it maybe speaks to the overconfidence of the british national teams at at, at the time that scotland felt they were entitled to just turn up to the world cup and wales did over well. their first first opponents um but it certainly while they while they played very well um 
yeah, I, I, I don't think they were quite at a level, certainly not in qualifying and not in, in terms of the team they've put on the field, although it was a lot stronger than it is today, clearly, um, to just expect to achieve a result. Um, so, yeah, some of that vitriol seems to have been a bit misguided and certainly deeply unhelpful when you two still have two very difficult games to come. This is the peak of Scottish domestic football, really, wasn't it? Kind of 1990. Yeah. yeah, like uh, Rangers had all that spending power. I think Celtic were were falling over themselves to try and catch up with it. But um, really, you know, it was even even just looking at the squad now, like it's a very very good squad. It's maybe not as good as the 1986 Scottish squad, and you know, the 80s in general. But like. Still, if you look at the names going down the squad, you know, the likes of Paul McStay, Mo Johnson, two players playing in Germany, Murdo McLeod and Alan McAnally, Stuart McCall, John Collins, who, you know, would go on to play in a couple of World Cups, Gary McAllister. Like, it was a hugely talented squad and it just seems like, you know, it did seem like it was their chance to maybe go and do something. And it, it goes to show how Quattrotto World Cup can be that, you can dominate your first game, probably you should win it, but the result doesn't go your way. And at that point, you're really struggling to stay in the competition. And it kind of goes to show that these first games are so important, as you'll see to, as you'll see in a few different cases in this World Cup. I think it does point up as well, as I, I was saying, though, that, that the level of, of awareness and knowledge of the footballing world, sort of beyond the immediate environs of the British Isles, um, wasn't wasn't particularly stellar in in the UK at the time. Um, so I, I don't think you know losing to Costa Rica after dominating was not the equivalent of losing, say, Saudi Arabia or so forth. Um, so yeah, it was it was kind of I think the Scottish players themselves were taken aback by by uh, the extent and the ferocity of of the reaction to this defeat. But it did kind of colour Scottish football for for many years afterwards. Famously, no British team has ever beaten Costa Rica at a World Cup. We'll leave it there because that's about as much Scottish talk as I can handle on a day like today when Ireland are about to jump into uh, their game with England. Now he's in Italy. He loves it. Lovely here, isn't it? I like this by the sea. I'm sitting over the sea all day. While English fans were reported to be running a mock 30 miles away in Cagliari, Jack was in his element, quietly plotting England's downfall. Looking across to the big one of the day then, England arrive with well, a whole mixture of problems. They're travelling fans, of course, uh, one with a reputation that even to this day probably still lingers on, but they, they're swarmed by police. There's a fair degree of tension around from the time they're there until you know towards the end of the tournament. Bobby Robson, of course, is, is in his last tournament as, as manager. He's already been battered in the press having agreed a deal to go to PSV Eindhoven after the tournament, which I don't think it was the mail. Somebody else scooped and, and uh, put out there early, but Bobby was, was certainly taking a bit of a kicking. He's given the Daily Mail a bit of a kicking in this podcast. So far. No, not at all. They scooped. They got a great little story there. In the, in the previous World Cup, they, England, I think it's fair to say, they felt robbed. Uh, the 2-1 loss to Argentina, of course, the, the hand of God, but also that sublime Maradona goal uh, that effectively... He beat everyone on the, the field and everyone asks Peter Reid why he didn't hack him down. But they went on to lose every game. It was game. too slow. Yeah, pretty much. They went on to lose every game in, in Euro 88. So I imagine the expectations maybe hadn't been quite as high as they would have been maybe in, in years gone by. They did 
I suppose, have quite a squad again, bringing a pretty strong team all in all. I mean, top scorer of the previous tournament, Gary Lineker. Experienced heads like 40-year-old Peter Shilton, which uh, is funny to think at the time. Man United captain Brian Robson, of course, leading the side out there. And not only that, but you look back, I, I suppose you forget the, the degree of, of flair that would have been around this team as well. Apart from Paul Gascoigne, who's the obvious one to mention here, uh, Chris Waddle and John Barnes, who, again, John Barnes probably was one of the, the big criticisms a few years before that John Barnes wasn't introduced earlier in that Argentina game because he, he really seemed to make a big difference, but he's, he's in amongst the squad and, and starting a little bit more around this time. Meanwhile, in, in Ireland, again, you lads are probably in a better position than me to discuss some of this. I know all the give it a lash stuff is out there, but there, there would have been a degree of confidence, I imagine. There was, yeah. Um, you have to remember that there'd been a sequence of games in qualifying. The Spain game, the Hungarian game, the Northern Ireland game. Just a absolutely jam-packed Lansdowne Roads, which is probably, net, you know, the atmosphere has probably never been bettered since. It was, it was just frenzied. And yeah, that, that, that kind of slight myth of Lansdowne, Lansdowne roar, as, as it was applied in, in subsequent years, um, was very real phenomenon at the time. So fans were used to seeing Ireland dominate kind of big must-win games and pull out a result one way or another. Um, and there was a lot of very kind of naive optimism, I suppose. There was the odd naysayer, um, the likes of, of Eamon Dunphy, who possibly had a slightly more realistic approach to how Ireland played and how far you could get playing that way. Um, against the very top teams in in the world, but uh, I mean, in some senses, it was it wasn't misplaced. If you look at the, the quality of the of the players Ireland could put out, um, most of them were, you know, decent first division players who were playing for some of the biggest clubs in Europe. I know that the style of play wasn't everyone's cup of tea, but it was ahead of its time in in many ways in terms of pressing and so forth. So uh, yeah, there was. A degree of optimism which may have seemed naive, not seemed naive. People were talking openly, though not always that seriously, about Ireland winning the World Cup, um, which I think also speaks to the fact that the, the level of knowledge around, let's say, international football um, wasn't perhaps as, as uh, sophisticated as it is today. A lot of people who would previously have had very little interest in the game, kind of got caught up in the bandwagon, which is one, one of the joys of 1990. But uh, yeah, um, misplaced or otherwise, the confidence was pretty high. In general, I think the international football at the time, compared to how it is now, it was kind of a bit more, I would just say, ad hoc or sort of um, thrown together. Any qualifying group at the moment, you know, even the, the smaller nations, which Ireland would have been for a long time, They'll always be well organised. They'll always be kind of um, defensively fairly sound. Back in those days, it was only really at the World Cup finals where you actually got teams with a month's preparation. And you, when you got to the World Cup finals, there was a lot more, I guess, time to work together. And that's maybe where Jack Charlton's sort of pragmatism and maybe um, fear of playing open football or, uh, you know, hostility towards passing may have come to fruition but um it was only really in world cups that maybe we saw the the true vision of what jack shelton's ireland was but, but also just to touch on it being a bit of an unknown landscape playing some of the world cup teams i mean the funny thing about this game and, and i suppose it took away from 
that mysticism a little bit is the two squads would have largely known each other. I mean, most of the, the players in the Irish squad would have played in the UK, uh, some with an emphasis on, on that word, or even from the UK. I think barring John Aldridge, who would have been in Spain or Real Sociedad, and I think John Byrne in the squad was also playing in France at the time. All of these players would have been in the English or, or Scottish league. So there's, there's certainly a degree of more familiarity in here and, and more familiar playing styles. We touched on the team selection just before we get into the game itself. Mick McCarthy, of course, in for, for Dave O'Leary and Staunton, as you mentioned at the top of the show, uh, starts ahead of Chris Hewton after his outrageous comments that uh, clearly Jack was annoyed by. But uh, I think it's fair to say about the game, it wasn't, wasn't the highest quality Ireland's long ball plan. Maybe affected by playing to the, with the wind behind them would often carry it sort of directly to Shilton or, or out behind the line. And, and it seemed for the most part, at least, Ireland's game plan was able to affect England's rhythm. And there might have been an extra element as well of, of knowing that we needed to stop Gascoigne, who would be getting the ball to feet and, and, and dribbling like he, like he did, just endlessly, endlessly dribbling. It might have maybe allowed Barnes and Waddle that extra bit of space. And, and it's Waddle who ends up creating the first goal with the Irish defence a little bit of sleep. Waddle out on the right flank from... I think, I'm not even sure the Irish defenders are aware that the game's restarted. It might have been out for a throw just before that, if I remember correctly. But the two Irish centre-backs or possibly even Chris Morris, who's on the side there, completely gone to sleep. Unbelievable ball by Chris Waddle. He hits this master stroke of a ball into the box, which Lineker essentially miscontrols, but it actually probably helps him out, as Bonner has committed to coming out, and he's left on the deck when Lineker miscontrols. It kind of rolls on, and he sees it over the line under pressure from Mick McCarthy and a few other defenders. That can't have been an ideal start about eight minutes in. What was nine-year-old Herlock thinking at that time as he came over? I- I was thinking, yeah, I, I remember having very kind of fatalistic thoughts about, you know, all this build-up, you know, is this what the World Cup is? Is this instant disappointment going to be the pattern of adult life? <laughs> uh, <laughs> yes. Not quite that, but yeah. Yeah, I, yeah, I remember being totally deflated by that goal mm-hmm. and feeling absolute revulsion for Gary Lineker for reasons that wouldn't become clear until decades later, possibly. Um <laughs> But, well, minutes, yeah. minutes later, what he, what he got up to. <laughs> That's maybe more accurate. But yeah, I, again, we were, I suppose, the, the, the enthusiasm around the game was such that it kind of didn't make sense. I mean, going goal behind kind of made sense because that's what you know, happened with a lot of the, the great days in, in Charlton's era. But going goal behind after what felt like a few seconds, although it was eight minutes, um, yeah, wasn't part of the plan. Well, anyway, as we advance in the game, Ireland are doing what they do best for the most part. They're holding tight. They're keeping the game in the opposition half. And, and at this point, later in the game, there's a few errors starting to creep into the English game, and, and particularly in, in the English defence. Interesting substitution made. I think I'm right in saying before they call this, Alan McLaughlin is brought in. Alan McLaughlin, of newly demoted to third division Swindon Town, uh, is brought in for John Aldridge, which is a hell of a substitution. I know we would have been playing in the, the first division before that, but um, yeah, it's, it's just one of those. What, what are you thinking if you're Gary Waddock? <laughs> I think what you're thinking is, if you're Gary Waddock, is and from people who don't know, Gary Waddock was pulled from the squad um, after being, I think, initially announced in the squad to be replaced by Alan McLaughlin. And yet Charlton brought, I think, seven strikers to the World Cup. Bernie Slaven was there. Well, if you're putting Quinn down as a goalkeeper, you know? Yeah. 
It's a bit of an unjack thing, really, in, in terms of the strikers, because I, I know he played four four two, but he didn't he didn't like to vary it up too much. It was always sort of Aldridge and Quinn and Cascarino as kind of your impact man. It was never he he, he never had a huge amount of time for attacking players, I guess. So it's yeah, I, I can kind of see the point. But then again, I guess Alan McLaughlin did have a bit of an eye for goal himself so maybe he just was kind of a bit of a bit of an ace in the hole that he could use and when you have players like Sheedy, Houghton, Townsend around as well there's always always a goal coming from midfield. Ireland as I said managed to uh, keep the mistakes coming from the English defence and eventually McMahon dwells on a ball sort of loses control of it and Sheedy nicks in and, and hits what you can only say is just a magnificent low drive it doesn't even really take much of a touch on it just Ball goes ahead of him, whack bottom corner, and it's a nightmare situation for the for the English because really you can clearly see in this game that that's going to be the final score. It was really no um, not not much of a game at all to the point where like I mean they were mocked somewhat in the press after, um, and I don't know who should feel more annoyed by this, the English or the the Irish, but um, I think it was the, the the UK press who who sort of put a spin on the no football please we're British headline. And uh, it was a bit of a laughing stock in the Italian press as well. They they were sort of, again, more on the English side, saying this is all the English have. We're, we're going to do all right here, you know. For all the the criticisms of maybe certain games around that period in history, I think it actually was a fairly decent footballing game. I think if you look back on it, England probably did play most of the football in that game, even though Ireland played quite well. I do think that England can feel aggrieved that they didn't get more out of it than they did. I don't know if Turlock agrees with that, certainly watching it at the time. Maybe he was um, a partisan Jack fan and cheering every single ball that John Aldridge chased to the corner flag. Mm -hmm. I agree England were the better team. I don't agree it was a decent game. It was absolutely shocking. I watched it back recently. Um, What I'd forgotten was how much of a factor the wind was. The wind just completely ruined, certainly the first hour or so. England should have had a penalty. Oh yeah, um, for my money, yeah. Yeah, Waddle turned Moran inside out. Moran, I reckon, clipped him. His hands go up straight away, um, and that's at one nil. So you wonder how much of the subsequent history of Ireland and Irish football will be different if, if the referee gives that. Mm-hmm. And also, just after Ireland equalise, Terry Butcher misses an absolute sitter. Um, it's one of those things where probably so much emotion around the goal that um, you know, people literally take their eye off the ball. I think it's Gascoigne delivers a free kick in. Everyone misses it. And Terry Butcher has a free header at the far post and somehow just skews off his big slab of a forehead wide, but with Bonner nowhere. That, Ireland were very, very close to losing that game. And I suppose we should probably mention at some point um, uh, Gary Lineker famously, uh, not only did he score in the game, but he also... Um, I think in his own words, avoided his bells at one point. And uh, I think it was, I don't know if it was a form of kind of dirty protest or uh, artistic installation in real time, but um, it, it seemed to mirror the, the 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 manner of the two goals. Certainly the Lineker's own goal, or Lineker's goal that he scored was a probably a result of a compound compounding miscommunication between Bonner, Morris and McCarthy. But uh the, the Ireland goal was no no less, I suppose, calamitous. Steve McMahon uh, made a, an incredible 
I suppose, cameo in the game, came on in the 70th minute, gave away a goal in the 72nd minute and then got booked in the 75th. And uh, I think probably the only saving grace for him is that he wasn't sent off. But uh, certainly it was his mistake yeah. that led to that goal. And I think, uh, you know, I think uh, a few people might not thank him for his part in the game. He, he well, to be fair, as you said, the credit where credit's due. He didn't, he didn't shit himself either. So there's <laughs> every cloud, you know. I suppose then let's uh, leave that game there because there's probably not a whole lot more to say on that. Let's let's check in for some post match with the Irish camp and, and how it's all gone down. Yeah, well, Jack Charlton was, you know, given that given that this was pretty much the apotheosis of the way Jack liked to play the game in his in his darkest moments, um, he was understandably. Cock a hoop. He said afterwards that he thought he had the hardest working midfield in the world. Um, actually, probably worth noting for those who, who don't, who might be a little bit younger and don't remember, um, Paul McGrath was a midfielder at this stage. He was actually at club level a central defender. Um, but Jack Charlton always played him up until sort of the mid 90s in central midfield. And the reason he oh, gave that. He played a bit in midfield as well, didn't he? He did. I I think there was. I think possibly before this game or the Egypt game, Ireland played a training match with O'Leary as a sweeper, and they got absolutely hammered by their second team, and <laughs> threw that idea out the window <laughs> straight away. Um, but yeah, Charlton Charlton was kind of uh, damning his players with faint praise. You might say slightly. He said our players may not be the best in the world. They may not make the best pattern, but they're the most honest. It was a typical English game. And Kevin Sheedy said it was the best goal he'd ever scored, which honestly, I don't think it was. He scored some fantastic some fantastic free kicks in his time. But yeah, it was, again, euphoria that was kind of, in the country in general, I mean, disproportionate to the quality of the game. But I think those who were a little bit more clued in, which I wouldn't have been at the time, Felt it was a bit of a false start to the World Cup. As we've said, it was basically an English first division game that ended in a fairly, if you take emotion out of it, fairly sterile and low quality draw. So yeah, a bit of a, a false start, but no less euphoria inducing in the general population for that. And it really was a case of, you know, the old cliche of, of winning one all. Um, it, it absolutely felt like that afterwards. Um, and, the, you know, the, the release after Sheedy's goal, I, I, it was only years later I noticed that Butcher had miss, missed a sitter straight afterwards because I don't think anyone saw it. I think people were still bobbing up and down for a good 10 minutes afterwards. In terms of news from around the rest of the world, I mean, the Swindon news keeps on rolling because Ozzy Ardiles has announced he'll stay on with Swindon despite their demotion to the third division. So Alan McLaughlin will surely be happy with that. Pretty interesting one in the US. Supreme Court says law prohibiting de- uh, desecration of U.S. flag is unconstitutional. And uh, also Olivia Newton-John appointed uh, environmental ambassador by the UN. John Travolta wasn't available, presumably. <laughs> Dave, have you got something you wanted to jump in here with as well? But it was a kind of a mixed uh, couple of days for, for politics. The Peru elected the neoliberal personality cult leader, Alberto Fujimori. But on the other hand, the, the Bulgarian Socialist Party won a majority. And uh, in Sri Lanka, the Tamil Tigers massacred over 600 unarmed police officers in the eastern province. Wow. Should have left it at Olivia Newton-John. Yeah, should have. Should always end on Olivia Newton-John. Okay, well, just, just to sum up, uh, the, the Bulgarian Socialist Olivia Newton-John was convicted of the, the murder of 600 unarmed police officers <laughs> in the eastern province. 
Tomorrow, so we'll be looking ahead to the other game at Group F, which is the European champions, Netherlands, taking on Egypt, and also a little bit from Belgium and South Korea. Hate just came, it just happened. It's rumoured you were once caught short during a game. Um, I've never admitted to it, but it is true. It is true? Yeah. <laughs> How much detail do you want in your No, I don't want any detail. I'm it just came, it just happened. And it was a World Cup game. You're joking? No. How come you didn't get filmed? Um, oh, I, it's filmed. I've seen it. It just came, it just happened. I was very fortunate it rained that night, so I could do something about it, but it was messy. It just came, it just happened. You were not feeling very well. I was not very well. I was poorly at half-time. Um, I carried on. I, there was a ball went down the left-hand side. I actually did try to tackle someone, stretch, relax myself. And um, it just came, it just happened.